0: The concept of addiction has been fraught with conflict for eons. Contemporary usage of the term continues to often be contradictory and confusing. I'm Dr. Brent Schillinger, along with Dr. Abby Strauss. To help us sort through this addiction quagmire, we're talking with Dr. Carl Eric Fisher. Dr. Fisher's assistant professor of clinical psychiatry at Columbia University. He's also author of the new book, The Urge, Our History of Addiction. Carl, thanks for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. What first caught my attention about your existence was an opinion piece uh, appeared in the New York Times earlier in the year, and the title of that piece was, It's Misleading to Call Addiction a Disease. When I saw that, it seemed to be like, wow, this this is really in contrast to what we as these caring, compassionate physicians have been espousing at least in the last few years. Our opioids task force, Palm Beach County Medical Society, our mission statement is to recognize addiction as a medically
1: treatable illness and not a moral failing. Have we been wrong all along, your opinion? The first thing I would notice is that illness is a different word than disease. Part of my concern with the word disease is that particular term has been freighted with a lot of associations. I don't think we should go too far down a linguistic rabbit hole because in the end of the day, I'm not looking to be the language police. But I do worry that calling addiction a disease can be misleading. The reason it can be misleading is that disease in particular is a double-edged sword. I've seen the, the notion of addiction as a disease help a lot. It, it helps attract funding and open up hospital care, in some cases, perhaps even encouraging compassion, like you mentioned. But in other cases, it can be a little um, negative, that it can be dehumanizing and fatalistic and that calling something a disease has been used, and in some cases used deliberately to promote stigma and social distance. So I think it's confusing. One of the best things that we can do is to use the word disease as sort of a red flag to look deeper, to, to ask the question, what do we actually mean by that term? I actually like, I like illness. I like malady. I like terms that suggest that medicine has a role to play, that we have evidence-based treatments that can help reduce the risk of overdose and death and other consequences from other substance use disorders. In particular, the word disease over the past several decades in particular has meant a sort of unhelpful reductionism.
2: One of the things that has always struck me about psychiatry is that we have for many years called our diagnostic categories as disorders. And it means something is just out of balance, not necessarily an illness, not necessarily a disease or some other associated label. It might be confusing, and it's a bit confusing for me too, actually, is to where to point myself in terms of how to define it, because attached to that is, does it make a difference in how we treat it according to what we call it? I, I don't know. I'm just wondering why the debate even exists and what came to you. You started to allude to it, that you had to point out that this is different. It's not a disease.
1: Mm-hmm. You know, where are we going with this? Mm-hmm. Abby, I think that's a great point, because for me as a person who is in recovery from addiction, when other people's psychological problems are called disorders, but mine is called a primary chronic brain disease, that feels different. I'm not personally offended by it. It doesn't bother me that much, but it that my, my ears kind of prick up. And I think to myself, like, what is it? You know, how come my patient with obsessive compulsive disorder has a disorder, but I have a disease? And what do we mean when we say disease? As a psychiatrist, I do think that we're especially clear about the definition of mental disorders. That, to me, strikes me as a bit more humble, more open-ended in a more evocative portrayal of the biopsychosocial levels that we normally consider mental problems.
2: Just to follow that thought, is there a suggestion that by calling it a disease or an illness as opposed to a disorder, that it is not a psychiatric issue so much, that it's more a medical issue? Again, going back and forth, I have bipolar disease. Now it's called bipolar disease. We used to call it manic depressive disorder. Are we shifting away from something that takes us away from really understanding what we have to treat?
1: The short answer is there is evidence from psychology and from sociology that using the language of disease actually encourages fatalism and pessimism that if people believe in the disease concept, they might be more likely to say that somebody is fated to use, that they don't have free will. And also that if you ask people about other people with addiction, if, if you ask people in the general population, what do you think about the disease of addiction versus the disorder of addiction, that the disease language actually encourages social distance. It makes people more likely to say, I don't want that person as my neighbor. I don't want that person as a coworker. I do think that there are actual potential harm. There are plenty of great examples of smart people who do get very thoughtful and compassionate perspectives on addiction from the language of disease. David Sheff is one. David Sheff, who wrote Beautiful Boy, writes about how, oh, you know, when I heard about the disease model, that helped me to be compassionate toward my son, Nick, at a time when he was relapsing and so forth. Also, Beth Macy, writer of Dope Sick, writes about going out and talking to harm reduction activists. In some cases, they're talking to folks who have very little understanding of addiction and the notion of disease and especially the sort of tricky binary between free will versus disease and hijacking on the other end was actually helpful in places like West Virginia for summoning up compassion and advocating for harm reduction services. So I don't know. In the end, I don't know. I'm not trying to go out there and say nobody should ever use the word disease again. What I'm saying is let's be careful about what we actually mean when we say disease.
0: So in terms of the stigmatization, can be argued, as you've just said, several different ways. As physicians, it seems we've been given this concept of disease in the dichotomy. Well, it's a disease, it's not a moral failing. In your perspective, are you suggesting
1: perhaps there might be some elements of moral failing within addiction? Well, definitely not because moral failing, I don't know exactly what that means, but at the very least it probably implies some sort of blame or shame or judgment. That's different, however, from making a dichotomy between choice and control. And I do think that's something the that disease language sometimes that either people with addiction are just bad people out there doing harmful things of their own free will and volition, or they're completely hijacked and compelled on the other. And that to me is oversimplified read the research literature, people fall into that trap. Sometimes even clinicians fall into that trap. I just think that obscures the truth. I think most people who live with somebody with addiction or struggle with addiction themselves, myself included, looking at my parents, looking at my own behavior when I was struggling with active addiction, there's an element of disordered choice where it feels like, you know, we're uh, we're still making choices and we're still out there doing something, in some cases, very complicated behaviors to get access to our drug of choice. It's just that there's, there's something off in the choosing. You suggested
0: in your book that when we say disease, the drugs hold all the power. Could you elaborate on that?
1: It's one element of disease, but I also think that even if we completely abolish the word disease from our language, we'll still have this problem. It's the problem some sociologists have called pharmacological determinism, the notion that drugs are the single most important thing, that the drug itself holds all the power, and that were somehow controlled by the course of society as determined by the special pharmacological powers of the drug as opposed to all the other psychological, social, uh, broader factors that go into the element of addiction. And there there are many examples of this. Many examples throughout time, societies have struggled with drug epidemics, whether it's the current overdose epidemic or whether we're looking back hundreds of years at, say, tobacco epidemics or the first synthetic stimulant epidemic over 100 years ago. There tends to be a period of time where people latch onto the drugs and say, oh, you know, this drug is especially powerful. It's more powerful than all the rest. And that's the reason why it seems to have such a special hold over us. And that's another kind of dangerous oversimplification because people use drugs for reasons and societies tend to switch between drugs and go through the pendular movement of drug to drug for a variety of reasons. There's always more than just the drug itself.
2: Do you have any sense, being a psychiatrist, being in recovery, of why we are again, earlier with fentanyl?
1: Why is this happening? What can we do to reduce it or mitigate it? A tremendous, tremendous problem. And just to put the, the issue in context, we recently passed a milestone of significantly more, sort a little more than 107,000 overdose deaths a year. That works out to roughly one death every five minutes. The, the issue of why is a really big and complicated topic. Just to give a useful top line, I hope, there are three big causes of epidemics. There's the drug itself. You know, drugs are stronger than broccoli. Drugs are stronger than, I mean, the fentanyl is stronger than caffeine. So that is a factor. But there also is the element of addiction supply industries, the industries that manufacture addictive substances, but then also often play a role in promoting their access or even shaping the way that we think about drugs. And then the third example, which I think is the most complicated and therefore the most often missed, is the broader social and cultural factors. Usually when societies are going through a drug epidemic, there's some element of social wounding. That's certainly the case in the U.S., For a developed country has by far the worst healthcare coverage in the world. Our safety net is miserable. Our safety net for other forms of social supports is very difficult, as we see in the crises of homelessness and otherwise. And also we have suffered under a particularly harsh prohibitionist approach to drug policy, which doesn't work. It just doesn't work. Prohibition by itself, crackdowns by themselves are never enough. For decades, have really been quite far out on that edge of the spectrum. People always want a villain. You know, People always want one answer. They want to know like, oh, it's because of the Sacklers or oh, it's because this drug is way worse than the last drug. If there's anything that I want to encourage, step back from the simplistic answers and look at the whole multi-level element of these problems.
2: And I think that's absolutely true and necessary. I have always struggled when I work with people who have been into and out of substance abuse problems. What is the difference between the person who gets in trouble and the person who doesn't. If we could find that and sort of extract it and distill it and give it to people, that would be awesome. Maybe organizations like NA and AA get close to it in a lot of ways. But just from your perspective, what's the difference between those who
1: get drawn into problems and those who somehow don't? Do we know that? There are individual factors. Abby, you're speaking in sort of an individualized register, which is relevant because there are temperamental factors like personality, impulsiveness that do do play a factor for some individuals. There are even genetic propensities that I think most people are familiar with because that's actually a, a notion that's quite strong. A lot of it is also society, family networks. I think if we look at drug use and drug problems as an individualistic issue, we miss the fact that socially protective factors, all the social determinants of health are massively, massively important with drugs and drug issues. So a lot of the things that have been studied as addiction prevention are not specific to addiction. They're things like housing, access to a good job, access to meaningful community, access to safety, and all the rest. Maybe in 50 years, we'll have some sort of personalized scientific assay to determine risk for addiction. And that might be useful too. There might be people who are far out on the biological spectrum. But I think for today, not only the thing that we understand better, but also the thing we have more control over has has more to do with those broader factors.
0: Your book took a very in-depth look at the history of addiction and how it evolved, how it's been defined. How far back does this whole
1: in human society, how far back does this go? As far as you can look, honestly, I was really curious to know how far back We could find examples of addiction, especially because addiction is a modern concept. But I found examples of people who could clearly qualify as people with addiction going back to, for example, the Sanskrit Rig Veda, which is from roughly 1000 BC. There's a hymn about somebody who has gambling addiction. It's called The Gambler's Lament. And it's a clear example of someone who's essentially lost everything, and yet in the poem is still compulsively engaging with the dicing. He hears the dice calling after him as if they were a lover. And then he feels his motivation waxing and waning. And at sometimes he's in control, but at sometimes the dice are in control. So many other examples from ancient Roman times, Chinese scholars in different dynasties, all the way through to the present day. The reason that matters, by the way, is that um, even though addiction is a modern phenomenon in the sense of the way we think about addiction today is kind of defined by medicine. It appears to be something that existed even back before we had a name for it. So what can we learn from all of this history? The element of that history, the personal history that really jumped out at me is that addiction's in all of us. It's not some clearly demarcated disease. It's not like a sickness that only some people have. You know, naturally, some people suffer from it more. Naturally, some people require more help. I really think that addiction exists in all of us in the sense that Ancient philosophers, ancient theologians identified this propensity to lose power, to struggle with self-control in everyone. That's the way it was talked about in Aristotle, in Buddhist scriptures, in basically across multiple faith traditions and philosophical traditions that everybody struggles with the divided self, everybody struggles with some element of will and what we call willpower today. and kind of muddy the waters if we if we try to make it into an us them dichotomy
0: and one of the issues as you wrote in your book that kept repeating there's so much politicization of addiction is that going on at the present time
1: yes and no i mean to ask if anything is politicized in 2022 in the united states is pretty straightforward <laughs> it's, a, it's a time of tremendous ideological divisions and really overheated intense politicization i don't know there's positives and negatives there's negatives in the sense that Addiction can be one of these hot button issues that gets addressed in a sort of like quick soundbite knee jerk way that makes out people to be villains or tries to be used as like a chip to argue against one or the other side Oh, they're too soft, they're too hard. But I think that there is something in the culture now where people are much more receptive to a broader view of addiction, that we've had a sort of one size fits all model for understanding addiction for a long time. Part of that is the medical profession's fault. I found that in the 1910s, 1920s, the medical profession basically abandoned the treatment of addiction, going along with the prevailing political winds of those times, which, by the way, if you know your American history, those are also very hyper-partisan, contentious times. So now, I think, especially with so many people being public about not just addiction, but also mental health struggles, there's much more awareness of the full diversity, the many different pathways to recovery, the many different causes and conditions that go into addiction. Some of my older mentors and scholars I've talked to agree with me on this, that we're in a pretty exciting moment for the possibility of synthesis, that there's a possibility, at least within addiction and recovery, advocacy, activism, and scholarship, that people can come together and find common ground around a more sort of integrative, pluralized conception of what we are, what we're talking about. I found it very
0: interesting, though, the way the history has repeated itself so often, and again, how it's been used in a political sense. You talk in your book about opium wars with Great Britain, China, the gin craze. with with the crack epidemic, how crack with the African-American population was treated a lot different than para-cocaine. I was watching an old movie that was recommended to me just last night called A Touch of Evil. Mm. In that movie, there's a scene in there where they want to set up this guy who's, who's working for the Mexican government trying to break the cartels. The corrupt police at the border town wanted to set him up and say, okay, we're gonna make it look like he is the drug addict and let's call in the vice squad and arrest him and we'll be able to put him away. And it's just so peculiar. It's like, wow, this is a thread that has run through our history for such a long time.
1: Absolutely. Sometimes it was dispiriting to see how history repeated itself. Sometimes it, it seemed almost as if we're trapped in these cycles. There's a constant pendular swing from one extreme to the other go through cycles of prohibition, focusing in on medical treatment, focusing in on reductionism and so forth and so on. I did find moments in history where things seemed a little more hopeful. There was room for integration and integration in the sense of the holism, in the true sense of the word, looking at all sides of the problem and trying to find ways of working together, building bridges rather than arguing that my way is the best way. Uh, Integrative solutions like early methadone clinics were not like these walled fortresses that you see in most urban areas there were actually these really warm and welcoming places where people could get the vocational training. and There was psychotherapy as well. The word back then, they called it inebriety, like inebriation. Back in like the 1870s, 1880s, we do get opportunities throughout time to break the cycles, finding ways of combining treatments and combining our understandings in a way that's useful. So that's one message I think the history tells us. It's not some complicated, a profound one. It's basically a call for humility.
2: You use the word wholism, and it struck me as you said that, that the nuance, the subtleties between that and disease are at opposite ends. And that disease, therefore, is not whole. It separates. And if we treat the whole person, the gestalt of the person, it integrates. So calling it a disease struck me it separates it discriminates it does not integrate the thought just went through my mind
1: what an interesting comparison good observation i think that is one of the dangers there are people who have used the word disease in to my mind a more flexible and open ended way you know benjamin rush one of the signatories of the us constitution and one of the founding fathers was also a doctor he wrote about what we would now now call addiction as a disease. He called it an odious disease. He still talked about it in a sort of flexible and multi-leveled way, where he said medicine has a role to play, but only a part. didn't have all the answers. Doctors can save lives. This is an object of medical study. It's something that the medical profession should concern itself with. We're not the final arbiters of truth. And nowadays, disease implies, in most cases, more of a sort of starkly reductionistic sense. It is away from integration and holism, I think you're right about that.
0: In the United States, we have a statistic, something like only about 5% of persons who suffer from substance use disorder actually admit they have a problem and want treatment. Do mm-hmm. we, as clinicians, as physicians, do we have the
1: right to actually coerce people into treatment? The vast majority of people who are getting addiction treatment are being coerced in the broad sense of the word, meaning they're faced with hard choices, but there's also informal coercion. And if your boss says, you better straighten out or else, or if your spouse says, if you don't get a handle on this, I'm gonna have to go, then that's also coercion in the strict sense of the term. I think the real question is not yes or no. The real question is how far do we go and what is permissible? For me, my experience was I, I did have some element of very compassionate and gentle coercion, as far as I'm concerned. People presented to me as a choice. They said, listen, nobody's going to force you to go here or there, but practicing medicine is a, is a privilege. It's not a right. If you want to practice medicine, then we need you to go ahead and take certain steps. And some of those steps include getting treatment and being monitored in treatment and doing urine tests and so forth and so on. I hated that. I really thought it was an unnecessary infringement on my liberty. I thought it was patronizing and unnecessarily restrictive and even draconian. And now I look back on it and I'm grateful for it. I think it saved my life. I was lucky that I had an alcohol problem and other people with opioid use problems. I'm cautiously grateful for having been coerced in the way I was coerced. If anything, I think the way that we treat impaired physicians and impaired medical providers is a model for how we should be doing coercion for other folks to treat treat people with care, treat people with compassion, and to really support their self-efficacy. When you support someone's self-efficacy, when you find the little island of the choice that they do have, and make sure that they recognize their own active role in their recovery, then they get better outcomes. So, in terms of treatment specifically,
0: we continue to see. A lot of very strong opinions something you referenced a little earlier like my way is the best way and all the other ways are not so good particularly with mat now m-o-u-d we have physicians who are saying this is terrific it's wonderful it's great we don't even need all that other stuff they'll they may not even need the psychological care and then you have the guys in the long-term recovery camp with the 12 steps and they frequently will say the medication shouldn't be part of the process at all, where you have recovery homes and halfway houses where they will throw you out if they catch you on Suboxone. What's your take on this?
1: The first thing I would say is that I've met and uh, communicated with many people in long-term recovery, including traditional 12-step-based recovery, who uh, are supportive of using medications. It's not something intrinsic to the long-term recovery community, it's a certain hardcore aspects of the long-term recovery community who have picked up a sort of anti-medication stigma. And part of what I try to do in the book is just tell the story of how that came to be, because in early Alcoholics Anonymous, for example, founders and many of those early members were not opposed to using medications, not just methadone when it eventually came around, but other types of medications. They recognized the costs and they recognized the benefits watch out for the risks of addiction. Some of the first people who really noticed the dangers of barbiturates in the general population, for example. This is rapidly evolving, and I think some of it will be pushed by law. The federal Department of Justice has only recently issued guidance about access to medications for opioid use disorders. I believe they've sanctioned the Indiana Nursing Board for not allowing a, a nurse with opioid use disorder to continue on buprenorphine. So at some level, this becomes a legal issue. It becomes an Americans with Disabilities Act issue specifically. It's also the ADA folks have used to argue for access to medications for opioid use disorder in prisons and jails. A lot of places where that's developing rapidly, like in the Northeast and Rhode Island and Washington State. In my own state, in New York, uh, the the Office of Addiction and Substance Abuse Services, they came down and created a top-down regulation saying, listen, if you want to be accredited, you just have to let people in. No more of this nonsense of, if you're on Suboxone, you can't be in my treatment program. These medications are the best supported by evidence for saving lives. I believe in mutual help recovery. I believe rehab saved my life. I believe in psychotherapy. I practice psychotherapy. I got a lot out of group treatment. All of those different modalities. All that stuff is great. And you can't deny that for opioid use disorder, the strongest evidence for actually saving lives is buprenorphine and methadone.
2: And I agree with what you're saying. I I truly do. I was very um, humbled many, many years ago. When I asked the guy who had just a nasty substance abuse problem, said, what made you better? What made you better? He was on medications and in all sorts of programs. He looked at me and he says, when I let my grandma back in my life, mm. she sat me down and said, she doesn't like the way I'm going. I've asked other people about, doesn't have to be the grandmother per se, but somebody who motivates them in a loving way to do it. And so it mixes everything that you've said. Because that's part of the psychotherapy. It just takes away the ugliness and the disease process. This is fascinating. So, you know, I know in an ideal world, not everybody has a supportive family. Sad, very sad. But I once spoke to a gentleman who was a teacher of psychiatry in one of the Philadelphia schools. And I said, so what? Why are you having so much problem in your neighborhood? He says, because the grandmothers are no longer involved in their grandchildren's life as much because people would say, hey, that's my grandma. Don't you monkey with her? There was that respect and a love component in the family network. So I'm stepping into multiple domains here. The sociologic issue, of course, the medical issue and all the other issues that you brought to the table. and I wanna thank you for bringing up the notion that we really need to look at the basic concept of our labels.
1: It spills over into all of these things. Thank you for that. Thank you very much. I appreciate that sentiment. I think it's nicely articulated. The one thing I wanna say about that example, about the family, this doesn't have to be an either or about medications or about any other kind of treatment. There's a difference between stopping deaths and saving lives, ongoing process of recovery in all of its different dimensions. But you can't get there unless you stop the deaths. And right now we are being crushed under the weight of a tremendous, tremendous rate of death.
0: I agree. A critical step. So with with different doors for different people, is there a way that we can develop effective algorithms to determine who is best suited for which approaches?
1: Oh, I don't know about that. You might be familiar that the NIH funded a massive series of trials called Project Match several years ago now with exactly this question multi-million dollar effort they couldn't match people to the treatments they couldn't predict who benefits from what medications have to be on the table community-based approaches had to be on the table different types of psychotherapies have to be on the table. Partial recovery or non-abstinent recovery has to be on the table. You know, a lot of people are not going to be ready to stop drinking or using right away. And I would never say to somebody with a severe opioid use disorder, hey, why don't you go out and try moderation? I mean, that's preposterous. But the fact of the matter is some people will say, I'm not going to do it. And then what do you do? We need to be better suited, not just psychiatrists, mental health professionals, but also the broader medical profession at meeting people where they are and engaging them in care and doing whatever we can to lower the risk in the here and now. One thing that Abby and I constantly talk about is the
0: high recidivism rate. You know, we have all these different approaches, yet statistically, it's not all that impressive. Any optimistic thoughts as we move into the future?
1: I think in the short term, it can look like it's, there's a very high recidivism rate, but or relapse rate, or however you want to term it. it and also some observers like John Kelly at Harvard will say that substance use disorders actually have the highest rate of improvement of recovery when compared to other mental disorders. There's tremendous capacity for change. In a way, I think that our stereotype of addiction is that people are broken, that somehow people are fated to have an awful life and have no control over their behavior. And that's just wrong. It's just wrong. Because the, even without medical intervention, depending on the disorder, a huge proportion of people will get better over time. For some people, it's because they found the right primary care doctor or therapist or whatnot. For some people, it's because they got on the right medication. For some people, it's they found the right group. For some people, it's just because they, they got older and they got the right kinds of social connections and supports. But you know, I'm aware of figures in the 50, 60, 70% range for remission over the long term. So I think I think what we need to do as medical professionals is is stick with it and to keep trying.
0: Dr. Carl Eric Fisher is assistant clinical professor of psychiatry at Columbia University. Carl, thanks for helping us sort through these understanding of addiction challenges.
1: Thanks so much for having me. It was a really great conversation. Thank you. Thank
0: show. you.